On this edition of the Maximize Your Medicare podcast, a very special guest. You can probably guess that I come into a wide range of people uh, across the country on financial matters, etc., etc., for one way or the other. My next guest is Kevin Cole, the nation's most renowned Gershwin pianist. Chicago Tribune has recently reviewed his latest album and basically said that this is the way that the composer intended the music to sound. The edited video version is going to be up in a couple of days after we're done working on it. But here on the Maximizer Medicare podcast, much more than Medicare, we've got the full unedited version of our conversation. Enjoy. The Chicago Tribune called my next guest the country's leading Gershwin pianist and called his latest recording a revolutionary, a what was what, what the exact word? A revelatory new recording of Gershwin's landmark concerto in F. For that, I welcome Kevin Cole. How are you, Kevin? Thank you for joining me. I'm very well, Jay. Thanks for having me on board today. So, you know, this review in the Chicago Review Tribune said basically that this is the way that the composer intended. I don't think it gets better than that, does it? No. Uh, anytime you get a review like that, it's a gift, first of all, because you're trying to do your best. And since Gershwin has been, I don't know, I don't want to say in my blood, but he's been on my shoulder most of my career um, to have that kind of uh, verbiage said about your performance is what you hope for. Because what makes this recording, first of all, stand out is that recently the scores have been restored back to Gershwin's original markings, notes, everything. Mm. Because, you know, things get edited over time. Sure. So, so we were the first recording to use these, they call them Urtex or the real deal. So if I think about it, this is a recording from Naxos, which is, you know, a, for persons who don't know about classical music recordings, you know, one of the very largest, you know, high quality, if you will, of the, you know, labels. I think that that is very, very safe to say. Is this your first time with the, a large label like this? Yeah, this is my first commercial recording. I have produced wow. my, myself in about five different recordings and CDs available for sale at my concerts or, or you sure. know, through Amazon or whatnot. But this is my very first commercial recording. Uh, and so it was very exciting. I, I mean, you, got, you know, Jay, that so many of the big record companies, um, they don't promote like back in the day anymore. Yeah, and there aren't that many uh, I mean, they still are pressing CDs, but most people are streaming this uh, online, which I understand. But it's, um, it's a big deal because there are four works that Gershwin wrote for piano and orchestra that I play all over the world. Uh, and this is the major one because it's an actual concerto. Actual concerto, right. Yeah, for piano. Right. Where the other works are uh, Rhapsodies. Raps and, and Blue. Uh, right. Yeah, Variations and but this is as big as, you know, over a half hour long. I mean, it's a big work. And so the idea, fingers crossed, 
is that in the summer of 2022, I'll record the other three works oh. uh, in time for the Rhapsody in Blue Centennial, which is in 2024, and the Concerto in F Centennial, which is in 2025. Now, it's the Centennial. So the, you had mentioned in the past that also means something to copyright type of stuff or well, what happened? Well, it's interesting already because I think it's 95 years is the limit. Um, the Rhapsody in Blue is in public domain. And as of this year, the Concerto in F is in public domain. What that means is, is that the scores that have been published to this point um, are free, free use. I mean, you can buy, buy them, but you don't have to pay a royalty on them to the copyright owners. The difference though, is with these new editions, which are actually the originals, which we've been waiting for for a long, long time, mm. because at, at, right after Gershwin died, editors at the, at the uh, music publishing houses wanted to get their they hands get in there. Advice. Well, they just want to put their name on there saying, well, you know, Gershwin didn't really know what he was doing when he was orchestrating. Uh, he didn't study in Europe, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to correct his mistakes. And I, one of my favorite quotes is from noted Gershwin biographer and scholar, Edward Jablonski, who was from Bay City, Michigan, my hometown, who said, better Gershwin mistakes than some hacks improvements. <laughs> right. You know? Right. They didn't know how to handle what Gershwin was doing with an orchestra. I, I mean, it was just, he was asking them to play rhythms that were very foreign Mm. to most of the musicians playing in symphony orchestras in the 20s were European born. Right. So this was, this was new to introduce jazz and syncopation and Charleston rhythms and all of that. And so he had to loosen their ties and their shoulders a bit to get them to do it. Uh, so editors, of course, go in there and say, oh, we're going to make this more standard symphony orchestra, you know, blah, blah. And so now we've gone back and when you hear them, uh, what, what is remarkable is that pretty much every person who's reviewed it for a publication or online has said how translucent the orchestrations are, transparent, mm. lighter, brighter, crisper. You know, they have all these wonderful adjectives saying, and we hear more detail. And of course, a lot of that is we had a terrific uh, recording engineer uh, in Philip, uh, Ro I think, Philip Rowland. Um, and, and it's just, yeah, you, you hear what he intended and you marvel at it because he, the concerto in F, the recording I just did, came out about a year, within a year of writing the Rhapsody in Blue, his first public serious piece for jazz band and piano. So to jump from that to a full symphony orchestra, orchestra. full-fledged, right. is within 10 months it's it's amazing amazing yeah <laughs> so tell me how did the whole process go like how did you get approached by the record company how long did that whole thing go you know people don't know how this works i don't know i've got like a billion questions for you but let's just start there <laughs> okay well it starts with the conductor because any soloist for the most part is hired because the conductor says, I want to work with them. I or I, I think they would be great for this program of Beethoven mm. or Gershwin or Bach. And, and sometimes, I should say most times, the conductor has already worked with the soloists, so they know what they bring to the table. I got you. 
So in this case, uh, the National Orchestra Institute, which is the summer institute at the University of Maryland, made up of players from all over the world, ages 18 through I think 28. And it's, a, I believe, a six week intensive where they get a different conductor every week. And what it does, it helps them prepare for their auditions for major symphonies all over I the see. world. Yep. And so what you get, this is the marvelous thing that this even exists. What you get are, are young adults who haven't played most of this repertoire, especially Gershwin. So they don't come to a rehearsal or a performance with any preconceived, oh, well, I played Rhapsody Blue or I played Concerto. Oh, I know how it goes. This is all new to them. So the conductor and I working in tandem are basically writing on blank pages. So they are fearless when it comes to giving this music its due. Also, they don't get, um, have the prejudices that still exist where some people think, oh, well, he's not Beethoven. Gershwin's not. So it's, it's for pops, you know, and, and there's that kind of snobbery about it. They don't have that. Music is music to these young adults. So right. you have that, yeah. that to start with. David Allen Miller, whose um, primary orchestra is the Albany Symphony in Albany, New York, has been the conductor I have performed Gershwin with the most with symphony orchestras, okay. starting in the year 2000. So we have a 20 plus year relationship and he really gets it. He gets what I wanna do, I get what he wants to do and he's just the right conductor to make this happen. He also knows how to convey, cause you can be a marvelous conductor, but, but sometimes you can't convey exactly what's in your head to an orchestra. He does so very efficiently, very uh, energetically, um, but he, he gets that, because what's happened over time is the, the Gershwin symphonic works have become heavier. They've gained weight and it they've started- gained weight, they, They've gained weight in the, among the repertoire of different performances? Well, no, no, not, not in a good way. Well, no, not in a good way. They've gained weight in the sense that temples have slowed down. Okay. Orchestra, orchestras are getting lusher and fatter. And, and it un, unfortunately started with Leonard Bernstein with his recording in the 50s of um, Rhapsody in Blue. And I love Lenny. Who doesn't? I mean, he could do it all. But the thing we have to remember is that Ger George Gershwin died in 1937. It was about the time Leonard Bernstein was, uh, Stein was coming... Stein, I always do that. <laughs> Bernstein, I'll say Stein. Bernstein was coming on the scene. And, and so by the early 40s, especially 44 with Fancy Free and, and On the Town and things like that, he was um, kind of bridging that gap between American music that Gershwin had started, yeah. American and classical music. And people were looking for another Gershwin because Gershwin died at the age of you know, 38. So they feel, felt cheated. So here comes Bernstein. Oh, he's our next Gershwin. Well, no one's the next. It's Gershwin. It's Gershwin. Just like no one's the next Bernstein. He's Lenny. Right. But sure. unfortunately, and he's a, he's a phenomenal pianist, when he conducted the Rhapsody from the piano, that became the recording that pretty much set the standard. Right. Every pianist wanted to you know, play it like that. And so he set that up. Well, it's a very, to me, as a pianist, very self-indulgent, 
But he didn't have a lot of respect for the Rhapsody in Blue. He even said so in interviews. He said, it's a bunch of tunes strung together, you know. Okay. And, you know, basically he felt Gershwin had a lot of chutzpah to put all this together, these tunes, and kind of stitched them very flimsily in his mind, you know. So, so when you have it in your head, even if it's subconscious, <laughs> you know, it, it still comes across. Okay. That being said, you know, this, I'm the Rhapsody in Blue now. And, and what happened was the symphony orchestras became the classical part of the Rhapsody in Blue. The piano had to provide the jazz. But when it was originally played, Gershwin's intention was the piano provides the classical and the jazz band that it was written for, Paul Whiteman's jazz band, was the jazzy part. Mm. But then when it became symphonic, things started to shift, and especially after his death. So the, the orchestrations became very big. And, uh, so now what I've tried to do in my approach to it is let the orchestra have some of the jazzy moments back, and I have some of the classical moments back, as well as the jazzy moments, okay? So we put the tempos brisker, especially in Concerto Enough, than what people are, have been used to. It's are been a little, to? yeah, it's been grander and more important and from the get-go. And we're like, no. But you have to understand, again, like I said earlier, most of the people performing this music when Gershwin wrote it were European-born conductors, especially. We, I, I don't know if we had very many American conductors in the 1920s, maybe just starting. But um, so they, some of these things, they, you could see in the score because they mark it. They had to slow down or they'd have to catch their breath before coming in with a downbeat for a new section. And Gershwin was just so tickled that it was being performed. He didn't get crazy on them. It was like, no, no, no. What? Right. Yeah, yeah. But, but given all that, that it wasn't a perfect premiere and all that stuff, it still communicated to an audience that this is something new. This is something different. This music speaks to us. Because you have to understand that, uh, of course, Gershwin wrote, he was living in Manhattan, New York City, grew up in Brooklyn, but, but he, his um, awareness of sounds, daily sounds, just walking in the street, was all put into his music. That, that was his influence. He, he loved that all these different nationalities and cultures we're coming together in New York City, trying to figure out what is being an American. Because they were bringing, you know, they were coming over, they're going through Ellis Island, they're all bringing their folk music with them, which he would hear. And he also, growing up as a kid, heard the transition from horses, hooves, to automobiles and skyscrapers being built and riveting, riveters, and he heard all of that and that was music to him, okay? We've got so, that today, right? I mean, you, I'm not sure if you follow modern day music, but you know, it, it struck me one day I saw an interview, it was, it was Billie Eilish with, uh, with Jimmy Corden. And he said, he, she was with her brother and she said she got some idea about some certain sound effects literally from a traffic sign that, you know, warning light on going across the street and she sure. that and that's infused. So it's, you know, I guess you know, composers have a different mindset. Now, is that your background, Kevin? So maybe you can tell us, you know, if you wind back the clock on how you got started in music at all, I'd like to, you know, talk about sure. that. Sure. 
Were you well, it, it was by happenstance. Composition or no, it was uh, playing piano. It was it was really by luck in the way because I'm the the youngest of three boys. Okay, my father um, played piano. He had three years of piano lessons as a young child. He switched to trumpet by junior high school and had six years of trumpet and loved music. And when he got married, uh, he was hoping one of his three boys might do something with music because he enjoyed it so much. Uh, my mom, when we, as, as far back as I can remember, she just loved all the old songs, all the old popular songs from the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So she was always singing those, you know, as holding me as a child, and I'm sure my brothers as well. And they had a very eclectic record collection. They didn't favor one thing. They had everything uh, in their collection. And we're always playing records. So we were exposed to it. It was a music household in that respect, not a performance household because they weren't, my parents were not performers, but, it, but uh, they loved music and songs and dancing and all that. Okay. So one of my dad's six brothers and sisters, so sister Margaret lived in Detroit at the time, and she was getting rid of an old upright piano. Okay. Now, my folks had already noticed that in the crib, anytime music was playing, if it was a record, the radio, TV, I was moving to it and I was reacting to it. So they thought something might be there. Okay. So my aunt, my dad's sister, asked my dad's family, anybody wants this piano, just pay for the moving from Detroit because everyone was living in Bay City at the time. And nobody said anything except my dad thought you know mm. i played piano and we should have a piano in the house because maybe one of the boys would like it fine so that's what happened and jay in all honesty i needed something to express what was boiling up inside of me and it just happened that the piano came into the house if my dad would have put a trumpet in my hand a guitar anything i think i would have tried to master it or dug into it because it would have been my conduit to connecting to music did you did, so were you trained or you so you, yeah we started with lessons i was four and a half we started with lessons we just got a local teacher that was recommended because she was dating my mom's brother at the time right. so and <laughs> then she later that? became my aunt do you remember the even, teacher's name oh yeah bonnie uh well it was bonnie brett at the time okay then she married my uncle and became bonnie lukowski and she taught out of well, she taught out at Grinnell's first, which was a store here. But then she yeah. taught out of Music Center in Bay City. I see. But she, in those days, though, <laughs> this, is, this is how ancient I am. The piano teachers used to drive to people's homes mm. to give lessons. You didn't go to their, well, some of them you went to their house or some of them you'd go to Music Center. But she drove to everyone's house and she had, oh my God, I swear, I know she had like 60 to 70 students weekly. And I think the first lesson uh, my mom has received because, you know, I have a Polish mom. I love my Polish mom, but they save everything. Okay. They make good detectives because they have every shred of evidence. Okay. So she has the first receipt she paid for the lesson. And I think it was a dollar and a quarter <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> so that's how it started. I started lessons and then I took to it. I mean, within the first six months, I could read music and, and play. And I mean, I was devouring music. She couldn't get it to me fast enough. She'd say, okay, next week, we're gonna do this piece and this week. You know, she turned the pages and I'd say, I already played that. Well, let me hear it. And I'd play it. 
Okay, then she turned a few more. I already played that. Because when I'd get done practicing the lesson for the following week, I was already going ahead because there wasn't enough to beat me. You know, I don't want to say it came easy. It wasn't so much that. It was just, it wasn't enough to satisfy me just having two or three pieces for the following week. You know? How long or who was it? Was it your teacher who said, Kevin, actually, you know, in addition to being a hobby, this is, this should be something ser more serious for you? Yeah. Did you always, well, did you always have that? You or? know, what's interesting, it wasn't with my first teacher. It actually was with my second teacher which okay. was at the at the Holy Rosary Academy in Bay City, okay. which ha, which pretty much was run by nuns, a certain order sure. of nuns. Sure. And it was recommended that I move on to a teacher that could take me to the next level because mm. I wasn't going anywhere with Aunt Bonnie. Bless her heart. Well, there but, can be limits. There are limits. Right. And the thing is, it was hard for her to let me go be, because basically... I was her cash cow. You're the, you're the star pupil, of course. Well, right. And she'd have these recitals. Jay, they would go on, I'm not lying, three to four to almost five hours because she had so many students. And she never taught her students that if you make a mistake in the middle of the piece, keep going. No, they would go back to the beginning and start oh, over. Okay. So you can imagine how many, some people had four or five mistakes and you're like, oh, this will never... And I was always last uh, yeah, on the sure. program, sure. of course. So I was attracting students because, wow, they, uh, Bonnie's teaching sure. Kevin. Listen to how he plays. She's got to be a great teacher. Right. And so, you know, it, it, so that, that was part of the picture. So someone said, you know, it's time. Kevin, has he ever gone to Interlochen or Blue Lake or some of these summer programs? Has he ever entered any competitions? No. And here I am already uh, approaching seventh grade. So I've been with her, what, eighth? eight going on nine years already so um anyway once i switched over to sister catherine was her name sister catherine williams she entered me in the bay music foundation scholarship a competition my first competition ever and in doing so i won for the intermediate division with the highest score they had ever given anyone out of a possible 100 you'll love this i got 96 and three-fourths <laughs> Now, you probably want to know what I got marked off for. <laughs> that three and one fourth. Yeah, exactly. How do you get to 96 and three? Minutes? Well, what it, what it was, was I, I, I basically aced the piece I played was uh, a nocturne by Edvard Grieg. And I aced that. You know, they had nothing but praise, you know, and I'm just a little kid. I hadn't had, I didn't no, no. shoot up in height. I was small. Um, and then what they do, they give you a piece to sight read. And I'm a good sight reader. Um, <laughs> And apparently two out of the three didn't like the way I sight read that piece. So they had to mark me down a, a little bit, you know, so. But anyway, right. but so being able to use that, yeah, yeah, using that scholarship in 72, sure. uh, the summer of 72, I went for, uh, for the eight week camp because it was eight weeks in those days. And that just changed everything. But I have to say the summer before that in 71, Delta College here um, used to have a summer music conservatory. So my parents uh, enrolled me in that, and we had a day trip by bus, school bus, to Interlochen because I'd never seen Interlochen. Of course, I'd heard heard of it. Sure. So I, when I was there for that day trip to see Interlochen in the summer of '71, I said on the bus ride home with my friends, "I'm coming. I'm going to be here at the camp." And I had no idea that that September, my teacher, my new teacher, would say, 
I'm going to enter you into this competition. And if you win, first prize is a half scholarship, half scholarship. To, to Interlochen. And it happened. The same thing that summer at Interlochen, when I found out they had a boarding school called the Interlochen Arts Academy, now it's called Interlochen Center for the Arts, I said to fellow campers, I'm going to come back and go to the school here. Oh, yeah, 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 sure, Cole, yeah. And so lo and behold, my senior year, I went to the Interlochen Arts. So, so you have to be careful what you say out loud is my philosophy, because if you say it out loud and believe it, for me, at least, it usually comes true. So that's how you got the exposure originally, of course, Interlochen being National Music Camp, you know, with lots of different exposures yep. of performers and other fellow students. From there, where did you go? You went to conservatory for college. Well, no, here's the deal. This was interesting. Um, right after graduating uh, in 77 from the Interlochen Arts Academy, of course, during that year, I had been sending in audition tapes mm -hmm. and, and, and materials. Um, and I um, was, you know, being offered scholarships to U of M, Michigan State. Uh, I had also applied to Manhattan School of Music, Juilliard, and USC. I think those were my five, because they, they wanted you to do at least four or five applications. And I was accepted at all of them. But the problem is, with a Juilliard or a Manhattan School of Music, you have to figure out your own housing because those days they did not have dormitories. Mm. It's changed some now, but back then, no, you have to figure out how you're going to live. And I, I'm from a poor background. We, there was no trust fund, no trust fund baby here, Jay. So uh, anyway, um, the thought was, I said, well, I had such an intense senior year at Interlock. And I said, I need to take a step back. Let me just take a step back and figure this out um, because money-wise, I don't. I, so I wanted to go to the Manhattan, right? Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go to Manhattan School of Music because there was a teacher there by the name of Robert Goldsand, uh, who was a fantastic teacher. He was a pupil of Moritz Rosenthal, who in turn was a pupil of Franz Liszt. So his wow. lineage was part of this grand romantic style of playing uh, that pianist had, like Horowitz, Rachmaninoff, from that era, late 18, uh, 1890s, 1880s, into the turn of the century. All right. And I, that resonated with me because even at that point, I, I was improvising and doing my own arrangements of tunes and stuff. And, okay, so but it was, actually, it was that kind of thing, yeah. So you were actually doing the arranging, what, from home, just by yourself, unassisted, uh, creating variations well, of existence? Yeah, I mean, I was, well, all through my high school years, because I went to All Saints High School first for three okay. years, and then, then to Interlock and Arts Academy. I was always improvising and creating my own medleys from musicals or songs or I whatever. So and actually from the composing, that was always kind of your thought to really be on the composing improvisation end or was it pure I'm going to replay you know particular sonata by you know Mozart etc well it's, it's well here's the deal um how my improvising and my arranging skills started was really my mom's doing hmm. because when I started lessons um I would say by the time see 
within two years of lessons. So I'm probably in first grade, starting into second grade. My mom would be in the kitchen and of course she'd worry about me because I'd rather play than eat. So she'd be getting things ready for supper and I'm playing and, and, and she loved it. But what she would do is she'd hear me practice my lesson, what was expected of me for the following week. And then she'd say, hey, give it your own thing. And funny, the, the hmm. language she used, she goes, give it the old Ricky tick. And what she was saying to me without her realizing, she'd give me permission to go play the piece again, but do what I wanted with it. it. Yeah. So once she gave me that permission, that turned into all sorts of uh, freedom for me. And actually, I learned as, as I was getting more serious teachers and study, and especially interlocking, that they complemented each other. The uh, technique that I had to develop to play the serious classical works certainly gave me freedom to do what I want improvising because I had technique. I, you know, I mean, because you're born with just like an Olympic athlete, you're born with abilities that just your body can do and maybe somebody else can't. Who knows why? It's just sure. the coordination, sure. brain, sure. hand, the whole, okay. Absolutely. So those are gifts and then it's how you develop them Absolutely. and how far you can take them. Okay, right. so um, having to develop my technique gave me freedom with my improvisations and creating arrangements. So it's only the a reverse. year interlocking, right? I mean, so... Well, but uh, well, let me finish though, because the reverse of that is true. Having a mind that was free to improvise allowed me to interpret classical music and serious music um, with a freedom that most students do not have because they have to do it exactly as their teacher tells them. So I get into trouble because the teacher would say, well, this is the word. I said, well, why is it this way? Well, you got to put your finger on that note. Well, why? I, this doesn't work. So. You know, it was, uh, it worked both ways. And I like that uh, for me. I'm a kind of a hybrid that way. And I think that's why so early on in my life, Gershwin was attracted. I was attracted to Gershwin's music because it was played in the serious halls. He was writing serious works. He was writing pop songs. He was writing for Broadway. And it was all music to him. There were no divisions. There were no hard, fast lines being drawn, even though critics were trying to do that to him. And I kind of felt the same way about music. Why can't I play chamber music one day and show music the next? What was wrong with that? But that was taboo for, for a youngster because, because of my skills, oh. they, they wanted me to go the route of the big competitions, Tchaikovsky competition, Van Cliburn, and I could have done it. I had the chops, there was no question. But it just, what, for what purpose? There are 5,000 other classical pianists <laughs> You know, who play perfectly well. What is going to be my soapbox? What is going to be my directive? What What am I going to contribute on a grander scale than just being another one they can hire and, and people listen and go, well, that was a pleasant evening. It's a good question. You know, and actually, I, this dovetails exactly what I was going to ask you, which was that, you know, in a, from your experience and now, you're not new. You've seen yep. and heard lots of different types of pianists like yeah. so you intentionally chose Gershwin because of the fact that it was your edge or because of your passion because I could certainly make the argument that or you know and you could hear it on YouTube or on 
I, I literally have at least tw 10 to 20 versions of yeah. Chopin nocturnes or Beethoven sonatas. And sure. now if you hear the third movement of Moonlight Sonata, you'll hear, you can see 20, 20 year olds rip this thing off in grandiose style with crazy technique and speed and power. And how would you be able to distinguish yourself amongst this 20 who hit record? Well, here's, and, and of course, the, these four works of Gershwin, but especially Rhapsody in Blue and Concerto in F, are the most performed piano pieces in any given year. They have been for years. And if you stop and think, is there another, because they consider, even though it's Rhapsody in Blue, it's considered a piano concerto when they hire you. You're playing a concerto because you're the soloist. Right. Uh, but but can you think of another American piano concerto that people no. request no. other than Gershwin's? No. And Barber wrote one and Howard Hansen wrote one. I mean, you just go on there. There are just a few. Substantial compose, American composers have written piano concertos, but they have not caught on. There, there's a reason for that. The other thing is, and I thought about this in more recent years, is well, what was I thinking to make Gershwin an American music? That, that, that's what I was thinking. That's where my exactly platform, it. because there are more recordings of Rhapsody Blue Concerto Neff than any other piece for piano yeah. and orchestra. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, next up would be uh, Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto, Rachmaninoff Second uh, Piano Concerto, and probably one. The, probably the Grieg uh, A minor concerto. Those would be, the, those are like the three most popular. For orchestras to play, you know, for their for their audiences, those are the ones people request. But I mean, pretty much every serious pianist worth their salt plays the Rhapsody in Blue and probably the Concerto now. So why would I? Why not pick something more obscure? Because it's like career suicide. Hmm. But this is where Ed Jablonski came into the picture, uh, the Gershwin biographer and writer who was from Bay City. Because it was through him I got to play for Gershwin's inner circle of friends and his sister and family. And I, they were the ones that said, when I was a teenager, they said, we never thought we'd hear the piano sound like George again. So, so there was that new layer added to because I didn't know I sounded like Gershwin. No, How would you know? How would you know? Like Gershwin. I wouldn't know. I was right. like... Well, the first time I met Jablonski and he said that to me, you know, the first time he heard me play in his living room on a spinet, mm. he said, you know, has anyone ever told you? Because I played a little Gershwin medley of my own creation and the first two piano preludes, which are the famous, the most famous ones. Okay. And after I got done on this little out of tune spinet in his living room, he and his wife were there. Um, I'm 15 years old. I'm actually in New York to audition for Tanglewood for the mm. summer. Uh, but I knew about Jablonski, and so I wanted to meet him. And that's a whole other story on how, how that happened. But, but let me get to this one, which is basically when I played my little made-up Gershwin medley and the two preludes, the second I finished, he said, has anyone ever told you when you play Gershwin, you sound like Gershwin? Okay, so you skipped timeline here, right? Because that means that at 15, somebody yeah. told you, highly qualified, yeah, highly qualified, one, one whose word you could actually put into your memory and saying someone strictly qualified here is <laughs> yeah you know well and the other thing jay as 
after I got after he said that, as I mm. told you, when you play Gershwin, you sound like Gershwin. Mm. He then put on real to real recordings from Gershwin when he had a radio program called Music by Gershwin in the early 30s. And he was doing it to raise money so he could have the time to write Porgy right. and Bess. Right. right. So I got to not only and he played. So I got to hear him play for the first time and also speak for the first time. And Ed says, don't you think you sound like that? So I actually got to hear it and go, God, I guess I do. But I don't know. Is there something in the water? What are, what are the odds that the foremost Gershwin authority crazy. and pianists are both from Bay City? Now, some people might blame it on what was in the water, you know, but. <laughs> That's I, still I, to be I, determined. <laughs> well, you know what I say? I say it, it's the, it's a, uh, what did I say? It proves the point on how powerful music can be no matter where you live and how it can change your life. Because my hearing, when I was in second grade, they were advertising on TV, a late night movie, which I think would start around 11.30 at night. I was gonna be on a school night. I think it was a Tuesday, if I remember correctly, Tuesday or Wednesday. It was called Rhapsody in Blue, the story of George Gershwin. And at, even at that age, at seven years old, you know, by then I'd been playing three years. I knew about Gershwin because my parents had a recording of Rhapsody in Blue mm -hmm. in their collection. So I was aware of him and his songs, but I'd never heard a big dose of it. Well, the movie I learned years later was like pure Hollywood made up. It's, it's not really his life, but all the music performers in that, Oscar Levant, you know, the greatest Gershwin player after Gershwin, um, the original cast to Porgy and Bass, Al Jose and Dune Swanee. I mean, all the performers were people that knew Gershwin and premiered these works of his. So that hit me so hard. And my parents, God bless them, let me stay up on a school night. Cause you know, in second grade, you're in bed by seven, seven thirty. But I made a deal with them when I got home. I said, if I, I said, tomorrow night, this late movie is gonna be on. I said, if I come home tomorrow, do my homework and go to bed right away after my homework, will you wake me up at 11.30 so I can watch it? And they said, yeah. So that led to me, once I left Gershwin, I mean, I was just like out of my mind. That following Saturday, which was our day for my mom to take my brothers and I to the local downtown. Well, actually we did the South End of Bay City Library, public library, to get our books. And, but I think this time we went downtown, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure we did. And I immediately went up to the woman uh, at the desk and said, do you have any books on Gershwin? And she said, well, just a moment. And she came back and she said, this is the best one. It's called The Gershwin Years by uh, Lawrence Stewart and Edward Jablonski. And did you know Ed Jablons Edward Jablonski is from, from Bay City, Michigan? And I was just like, what? <laughs> and so it was like, uh, I couldn't read all the, the text of the book, but I certainly could see the pictures of, of his life, read the captions there. And it was right then and there at age seven, I made a pact with myself that one day I'm going to New York City and I'm gonna find Ed Jablonski, let him know how much I love Gershwin and I'm from Bay City. So that, what happened then, eight years later, <laughs> my first trip to New York and, uh, the moment I got into the hotel, the Americana Hotel, which I think is just a Sheridan now, I pulled out the Manhattan phone book, which was huge, probably almost as big as I was, <laughs> turned the page to Jablonski E 
and there was a whole bunch of them. And I literally put my finger on one, called him, and called that was him, the right one, say, and it was him. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember exactly what I said. I said, um, "Hello, is this Ed Jablonski?" He goes, "Yes." I said, "Well, my name's Kevin Cole. I play the piano. I'm from Bay City, Michigan, and I love Gershwin." I might have said two. You have made that up. You couldn't call up a random person and make that up. So you knew that. <laughs> no, no. I said, I love Gershwin too. And then there was this chuckle on the other end of the phone. And through our conversation, he and his wife invited me for a supper the following night. And that's when I played for him. You know, that's the backstory to playing for him and he even saying what he did. So what consequently happened my, during parts of my summer starting, you know, in my junior year, senior year, and then once I'm out of high school, I would go for a couple of weeks, two, three weeks at a time and stay with the Jablonskis. And, uh, and, and they had kids. Well, their youngest was my age, Emily, and they have another daughter, Carla, and David. And he would have these gatherings. And one in particular was when he had Gershwin's sister, Frances, her husband, Leopold Godofsky II, whose father was the famous classical pianist, Leopold Godofsky. Uh, also, Leopold Godowski II was one of the co-creators of Kodachrome for Kodak, so made a zillion off of that. And he also had uh, Kay Swift, who was uh, a paramour of Gershwin's, but she, a composer in her own right, who helped him uh, write out Porgy and Bess and, you know, was his, his right-hand gal. Emily Paley and Mabel Shermer. And so he had this afternoon where I sat and I played my Gershwin medley. I... Um, well, actually, yeah, no, what he did first. Oh, that's right. Ed had a real-to-real recording of me playing the first movement of the Concerto in F, which I did at Interlochen, not by winning Interlochen's Concerto competition, which I did not win, um, but Michigan, the state of Michigan, used to have a Michigan Youth Arts Festival, and Central Michigan University used to host it. Mm. They had an honors orchestra that would meet, I don't know, a couple of times a month down at the University of Michigan, made up of students, 125 students from all over the state. I think they had to audition for it. And then their prize was at the end of the school year, they would play this concert. And this particular year was going to be held at Interlochen, my senior year. So I entered the competition unbeknownst to my piano teacher at Interlochen because he wanted me to stop playing the concerto now, blah, 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 all this stuff. So I literally forged his signature on the application <laughs> for this competition, the Michigan Youth Arts Festival, because they had uh, all they had a string category, woodwinds, voice, piano, and brass. So I entered it, and I, and the only thing is, the night before, or the day before the competition, I told my teacher, I said, I want to play this because oh, I had to have a second pianist with me, my friend Jerry Schubert. She uh, did the second piano the orchestra part for the competition. I said, I want to play this for you because tomorrow I'm, I'm in this competition. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, no, I just want to play it for you, see what you say. So I played through it. He said, sounds terrific. I said, okay, well, I'm going to competition tomorrow. Bye. You know, so we did, long story short, I win first place and you get to play uh, once you win, I think it was like two weeks later on the air, on WCMU, on the radio. And I thought that was it. Well, the orchestra's prize, the Michigan Youth Arts Symphony, for having all these months of rehearsals, they were playing their own concert 
And it just so happened to be at Interlochen the next day. So Roger Jacoby, who was the president of Interlochen, knew about this, called up Charles Gabriel, I think was the conductor's name at U of M, calls him up that week and says, you will program Kevin's movement of the concerto and F as part of your Sunday program, won't wow. you? <laughs> so it, I was kind of vindicated because I didn't win Interlochen's competition. I brought my own orchestra <laughs> in May. It was just like three weeks before graduating. And here I am, and they're doing all this other repertoire. And, and then I come on stage to play my one movement. And uh, it, so it was, it was a real, real blast. But it, so anyway, that recording is what I, I had a copy of it for Ed. He played it for the Gershwin family and inner circle of friends. Uh, okay. And I'm sitting there on the bench of his little spinning because I haven't played live for them yet for this little afternoon tea party. <laughs> and Jay, it was this creepiest thing because I am all of, at that point, I think I would have been 18, 17 or 18. Um, it had to be, yeah, because I just graduated from Interlock. And, and I think that was during that summer of 77 that this happened, I believe. All of a sudden, it was playing, and one got up and left the room. Another one gets up and leaves the room. Another one gets up and leaves the room, and they're coming back with tissue. And they're and I, and you know, I'm a youngster. And I'm thinking, oh my god, it's so bad. They're crying, you know, <laughs> not knowing that it wasn't because it was so bad. It was because they heard this. They heard George Gershwin. I mean, they heard something that I have in my playing that evoked this connection they all had to George. And so when it was done is when uh, Kay Swift, you know, she said, I never thought I'd hear the piano sound like George again. And uh, George's sister, Frankie said, you have all these sharp rhythms and it just, just like my brother did. So then they wanted to hear me live. I'm sure to make sure that this was not some phony thing. So I played my Gershwin medley and when I got done, it was, it was really something. Uh, and then Kay Swift, who used to play two pianos with Gershwin, they'd improvise and work out stuff. It was suggested, Kay, why don't you join Kevin on the piano bench? And I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is unbelievable. So she said, well, what part do you want to play? Top part, bottom part? I said, well, I'll play the top part. So we picked a tune, because you know, what Gershwin tune do you pick? And we're just going to improvise on it. And it's a song called Dear Little Girl, which comes from his 1926 musical, O-K-K-A-Y. But it wasn't written about Kay Swift because he hadn't met her yet, all right? So we start out the tune and she's, you know, playing the bass and, and chord, like rhythm kind of, and I'm doing the melody. Well, Jay, there was a point while we're playing that all of a sudden we went into the same lick. We went into the same rhythm which is, you wouldn't, uh, somehow we were connected in such a way that we went into this really offbeat rhythm uh, as we were playing the piece, uh, going through it the second time. And we looked at each other, I remember on the bench and kind of smiled. And literally I felt I had done this before. And I, I'm not one of those, I, I'm not, I never, I'm not reincarnating George. No one will be George Gershwin. But, the, and, and luckily, this is, it was recorded because Ed recorded that afternoon is and their comments. 
It's somewhere in my storage unit. <laughs> I, I I know it exists because he duped it down. It was a real to real. He duped it down to a cassette. So I have it somewhere. So let's but it go was back to yeah. So now you're discovered. I mean, you get your well, book, right? You, you've, right. You've met you've met you've met Gershwin's family, direct family, and yeah. they have basically anointed you. From that point, uh, you know, our decades. Decades sure. from then to now, from 18 to, you know, 18, your young man, teenager, not too early, though, by any means in a musician's right. life, right? I mean, 18, you know, the, the cream of the crop is already, I mean, has been, you know, identified, sure. right? In sure. violin or piano or whatever yeah. instrument, absolutely. So what... Where, where where did your career go from that point? Now you're a young adult. Did you go to to a formal schooling or did well, you no, he had, that or? well, as I had mentioned, Manhattan School of Music because of the teacher Robert Goldsand sure. was my school of choice. But um, here's what happened. The real story is, I went to the audition. Uh, on my audition day, and I, you know, you're waiting out in a hallway. And the Manhattan School of Music building is actually the old Juilliard School of Music before Juilliard moved to Lincoln Center. Okay. So I'm, you know, hearing other people play it. In fact, a couple of the people before me uh, were playing the same uh, Chopin Ballade number no. two. And, uh, but that didn't freak me out I, it, at all because I thought, well, and some of these were grad students and I would, I was an un auditioning for undergrad. So they didn't freak me out because I thought, well, I, I played as well as that, you know, so, but something happened to me because I did realize that even if I got accepted and even if I got a full scholarship, how in the hell am I going to live in New York? I, yeah. At that time, I mean, I, I'd have to get a job I, and I'd have to figure, I had no way because I was sleeping on friends' couches. I was at Jablonski's. I was at some friends in New Jersey. I was, I was just bouncing around a, a lot of my interlocking colleagues who had just graduated with me from the Arts Academy. Some were already going to Juilliard, some were at different places, but they came from families of means where their parents could pay for an apartment monthly, and I, I don't. So it was the person just uh, ahead of me that was in doing their audition, mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought, I got to leave. I can't do this. Why even waste your time? So I walked out. So you did not go to the audition. Well, but here's, here's what happened. I walked out, got on the bus, went back to New Jersey where I was staying with friends. So one of my interlocking colleagues, and, but I had to have their phone number was the contact number. The very next day, Robert Goldsand, the piano teacher calls me. Where were you? And he was from Vienna. So he had a little bit of an accent. Where were you? I, and I explained to him, I said, I just didn't feel worthy. He, he said, I want to see you this week. You come tomorrow to my studio, six o'clock, and I want to see you and hear you. I said, okay. Because he had played at Interlochen my senior year. And that's where I heard him. And when I heard that, the, the tone, how he played, I was just like, oh my way. He could play a C major scale and make you weep. And I went, okay, I want that. I want I know I can do that. I want to know how to do that. So I went the next day, went, took the bus into the city, went to Manhattan School of Music. And I get into his studio and he says, play what you're going to play for your audition. So I had a movement of uh, Beethoven's Sonata. I had the Chopin Ballade. And then I had uh, Gershwin Three Preludes. 
lo and behold, he had recorded uh, on commercial recording. He's actually, even though he's European born, he's recorded more American piano works at that time than any other pianist had. Hmm. And he was the equal to Horowitz and Rubinstein, but he didn't have the PR machine behind him like they did, even though he had his Carnegie debut when he was 16. He wasn't married to one, he also wasn't married to one of the composers. What yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so anyway, I, I played. Horowitz, and, for, for people who didn't know, that's Vladimir Horowitz. Yeah. But anyway, let's Yeah. <laughs> so he, so after I get done playing my audition works for him, he said, let's, let's go back. And he always had this little stub of a cigar. I don't know if he really smoked it, but he had it there and, you know, it wasn't lit or anything, but he was just so kind. And I remember noticing up close, because I hadn't seen his hands up close before, that he had the advantage physically that these four fingers were almost even across. Hmm. As you notice, we, ha we have spaces, you know? Right. He didn't. This figure was almost as long as that and, and this one. So talk about for even touch, when you when they're almost, I thought, oh my word, I'm gonna have an operation. Chop that up. <laughs> no. So anyway, we went back uh, through a few pieces, and, he, and and what I loved about it because I had these teachers that half the lesson was spent. They talked about what they did, who they did, you know, made music with. Blah blah. blah. It was more about their career than it was about a lesson, and and that can be entertaining, but I want to learn. Okay, I want to get. I'm paying you to give me what you something of what you got so I can move on. He didn't do that. He said, okay, this measure here, um, play that for me, you know, or at least four measures and I'd play. And then he'd go, oh, oh, why don't you try? And he'd show me something. And I'd go, okay. Everything he pointed out, and there weren't a lot, I'd say half a dozen, eight different things and pieces. Everything, what he told me to do, fixed it immediately. No fuss. No must, no pontificating, just try this. And I went, oh my God, this is amazing. So what happened to end this, the chapter with Goldstand was I studied privately with him because I could not afford to go to the school and live in Manhattan. So for, for about six months of sleeping on people's couches, I studied privately with him. What's your first uh, he, big break after that? Well, I came back to Michigan then because I didn't know what I was going to do. All right. And so um, I thought, well, I got to get myself out there as soloist so sure. that I'll get hired. And so Saginaw Symphony, I had played in the orchestra, orchestral piano as a member of the orchestra uh, in my high school years because I was early high school years, junior high and high school, because I was studying with the then conductor Gideon Grau's wife, Irene Grau. She was after Sister Catherine. So I had that experience. And then, then I entered a uh, competition and, and I think one of them was, you get to play a movement with the Saginaw. It was called Saginaw Symphony in those days. And I did. And so then I got hired a couple of times as soloist with Saginaw. And then that branched out to a few other Michigan orchestras. Um, but it was basically, it was a haphazard career in the early days because I had this reputation that I had to push out there of playing Gershwin like Gershwin, okay? And I had to promote that and hope conductors would say, hmm, well, you know, I can get, you know, Aunt Tilly to play Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, why would I get Kevin? But once they had me, then they, I'd be a repeat 
uh, performer with the group. And that's the whole thing. See, I have to hit a home run, especially with these pieces that like they can hire anyone for. I, I have to prove to them that I can hit a home run every time I'm at bat at that piano. Uh, because I don't have the television or film or whatever exposure uh, that some people like a long, long in today's world or uh, others back in the day had. And so I have to, the proof is in my playing. I can't make mistakes. <laughs> I just can't. And if I make them, nobody better know except me. Right. Uh, because, uh, yeah, my next job depends, depends on it. So, so basically, Jay, it was just word of mouth through uh, conductors and the executive directors, orchestra managers who would say, yeah, we had a great experience with Kevin. You want, you know, they'd say, somebody would say, hey, we're looking for a soloist for Oh yeah, you want to get Kevin. Oh really, really, he's that good? Oh yeah, yeah, the audiences just go crazy and he's a really nice guy, but you know, whatever. And so my whole life has been that way. I did not have an agent, a legitimate agent. I had people I would hire like as business managers and try to get work mm -hmm. for me, but, but they weren't in, in those circles. In circles. It was only a few years ago that for a three-year commitment, I, I had uh, William Reiner. He's very well-respected, been in the business 40 plus years and a super nice guy. Um, and we had an exclusive arrangement for three years and it worked sometimes and sometimes it didn't. It, it's just, again, the way the marketplace is for hiring pianists. So now we're not, we're, I'm not on an exclusive with him, but if he finds, you know, uh, a gig for me with the symphony orchestra, he gets his 20%, which is the average an agent gets. So, uh, so it, it's good. Oh, I'm bumping myself. So it's a good thing uh, in that respect, because I'm still free to do, you know, my, my own thing and whatnot. So in these decades, what's the, of all the places you've, the venues you've played, the most spectacular, over the top location, at least in the United States, what would you call it? Well, it's, it's a trifecta. It's hard to say one. I mean, if I was gonna, if I was really pressed to say one, it's gotta be Carnegie Hall. I mean, that's every kid's dream. Uh, at least for my era, is what to play, play Carnegie there? Hall. I what did. You know, it's funny. I played Gershwin with the Albany Symphony. It was part of a program that doesn't exist anymore that they would do called, um, something, uh, it had to do with spring. Spring for music, I think is what it was called. And the whole idea of this festival, it was a week-long festival, was they'd have five different orchestras. You had, uh, the orchestras had to submit a program of lesser-known works by American composers. I see. Things that, that, that aren't played as often. And so the Albany Symphony had already got on the program and then, so they submitted again. But if you've been on it one year, you have to skip a year. You, uh, you can't reapply, it's, right. it's every two years. So David Allen Miller, the conductor, um, I, I remember a very distinctly, because <laughs> this is gonna sound like name dropping. So I, I, I uh, Apologize no, that's okay. No problem. But I was actually visiting my friend Dan Brown, the author of the Da Vinci Code. Oh, is that right? Books. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another story. We became friends when I was out in LA back in the day, a struggling uh, singer-songwriter. He was a struggling singer-songwriter, and so we met. Not that struggling way. any longer? No, no. <laughs> but anyway, I was actually visiting him. Okay. In New Ham in New Hampshire when I got a call from David Allen Miller saying, hey, 
I'm going to submit this program to Carnegie Hall for this festival. Um, he said, I want to do both Rhapsodies, the Rhapsody in Blue and the second Rhapsody, because the way we do Rhapsody in Blue is unlike anybody else, even though it's a really well-known piece, the way we interpret it is so authentic to Gershwin and, and putting the two Rhapsodies together. So he submitted that, but then the committee said, eh. So it just became the second Rhapsody, which is the piece I had at that point played the least. I think I'd only played it three other times before Carnegie Hall, <coughs> excuse me. And then I thought, I don't care if he asked me to play Mary Had a Little Lamb, it's Carnegie <laughs> Hall, you know, and it's taken me 50 years to get there. Okay, because I, yeah, it happened in 2013. And so I did, I played the second Rhapsody, which is actually the, the name that Gershwin gave it was the New York Rhapsody. And then just like a couple of weeks before the premiere, someone said, oh, no, 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 that's not, you need something that sounds more classy than that. So he said, all right, second Rhapsody, which I think is a horrible name because, you know, second always sounds like it's not quite as good as the that's first Rhapsody. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, uh, so yeah, I played it. It was broadcast all over the country. And, but then, then but <laughs> David is the conductor. David Allen Miller is so good to me. He did the same thing when I played, I made my debut at Hollywood Bowl in 2003, 10 years earlier. Wow. And I did the Rhapsody in Blue there. He said, you're going to play your Gershwin medley. And now for the Hollywood Bowl, we had two nights. It was all Gershwin. And I played my full, you know, 10 songs and 10 minute medley. But he said, but for Carnegie Hall, he said, because it's on the radio, everything's timed. Can you do that 10 minute medley like in five minutes? Oh my. <laughs> and I said, you bet I can. Really? So I, I did. I, I was able to, in my head, trim it down. And it is so high powered. And the audience goes absolutely berserk. So I did it as an encore at Carnegie Hall, which was not planned. Nobody knew except the conductor and I. And even the radio announcers, you can say, oh, oh, you know. But I'm so glad he gave me that opportunity. Carnegie, but the three places in the States that are the, the remarkable ones for me were, you know, Carnegie Hall, Hollywood Bowl, and Kennedy Center. Um, there are others, of course, and the Ravinia Festival, it has its own special place in my heart because out of the 20 summers, uh, I think I performed 13 out of 20 they had me, which is a remarkable record for, you know, I'm not Tony Bennett. I don't, they don't have me every year. So I, I, I count my blessings because of the uh, Wells Kaufman, who is now the former CEO of Ravinia. So, so Ravinia has its own special altar. But, but I, I do want to return one... to, to Chicagoland, actually. So yeah, you're... yeah, but I have to, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say one footnote on Carnegie Hall. What makes it so special? Okay, because I had been to concerts there and I know what made it special from an audience. But I had no clue being on stage how it felt, how the room sounded, uh, how, how, how you feel, how you connect in that room. Why is it so revered? Okay. First, uh, that concert was in May of 2013. In March of 2013, I was in New York and part of my reason for being there was uh, Carnegie Hall folk wanted me to choose the Steinway uh, concert grand Right. to play and they have two they have a hamburg one and they have an american steinway and so literally <laughs> i went in at 12 30 in the afternoon and the stage manager's there and there's nobody in the room at carnegie hall it's just these two pianos on stage and he said 
take all the time you want and then just let me know which piano you decided. So here I am walking on stage at Carnegie Hall and hold, I'm back. Okay, you're back. Walking, you? walking yep. on stage at Carnegie Hall to play on these two pianos and I, there was no time limit. So I went to the Hamburg first and it was beautiful, but Hamburgs tend to be bright and dark at the same time. Uh, I love the action, but then I played on the American one. Now, again, I was playing the second Rhapsody and for that piece, the American one worked really great. So then I went off stage and the stage manager today goes, well, what's, what's the verdict? I said, the American one. He says, I knew it. He said, I could just tell the way you were playing. I said, yeah. So. So I left there and lo and behold, I was gonna go get a little bite to eat because it's probably, I don't know, 1.30, 2 o'clock because I don't think I spent more than an hour there, even though I could have. Uh, I mean, what a luxury to be Carnegie Hall yourself and play, I just, ah! So I go, I walk out and I go a few blocks away from there and I'm turning the corner and who do I run into is David Allen Miller and his son, Elias, who was there for auditioning uh, with cello for something or other. and. So we all had uh, uh, lunch together at a deli. And uh, so I took that as a good sign. So the day of the concert, here's the feeling. I'm sitting there playing and there are spots in the music as with all concertos and rhapsodies where you're not playing, the orchestra plays something, you're waiting for your next entrance. So I'm you know, this way to the audience, of course, and I'm looking at the wall and I'm saying to myself, that is the same piece of wall that Rachmaninoff and Gershwin, and I just named hundreds, of, had to look at when they're sitting at this piano, just like I am right now. I'm in the spot, that's the wall they're staring at. But I made a point too, in, in one of the other sections where I didn't have to play, I'm just looking out at the audience and taking it all in. Because normally you don't do that, but I said, you know what? This may be my one and only. And I felt so good up there, I said, I want to take this all in, but I will tell you this, that hall is one of the, maybe there's two halls in my life that actually is a living, breathing entity that talks, well, it spoke to me when I was playing. And it basically says, what do you want to do? We can go anywhere with this. I'm right with you. Come on, let's go. And literally I could hear that voice in my head from the hall saying, I'm with you. and when you're sitting at the piano, nor normally you're at a disadvantage to hear the full throttle of the sound from your instrument because it, you know, the lid, it's going out. No, what you hear on stage is exactly what every seat in that place hears. So that was like, what? So, I mean, so the sound is all around you and it's so lush and gorgeous. You're like, am I doing this? Or am I just observing this happen? So it, it, was, it was a remarkable experience to have the hall sitting on the bench with me. That, that's, all, that's the only way I can describe it. So the, but the minute I left the stage, they had the guy there with the microphone talking to me on radio. You know, basically, I'm going to Disney World, but I didn't say that. Uh, they, they wanted to know how I felt and all that. And I said, I want to immediately go out there and do it again, because that's the feeling. It's so unlike any place else that I go, I got to go out there and do it again, because it's just, I've never... I want that feeling again. I want that feeling every hall I play. Now, not to say that I don't have an internal feeling like that, but to have a buddy have that feeling with you and basically take you in its arms and go, come on, whatever you want to give me, let's go. And pianos can do that sometimes too. And it is 
and it comes across in, in the recording from that uh, broadcast. It's just, I think I sold that piece to a lot of people who go, what is the second Rhapsody? <laughs> and I've had many comments people say, God, it is a marvelous piece. I had no idea. I said, well, you got to give it enough juice so it has importance. So from that, from there, from those recordings, the publicity from there was your a good springboard, a good way to market yourself and get to review. Yeah, you, you know, J not really, Jay. Um, because I don't have a PR machine behind me. I, I mean, I, I'm kind of a one man band. Sure. Because of that, um, I have all these moments, like you know, Royal Albert Hall in New York and Carnegie Hall, and all these things. And the reviews come out, and they're usually pretty spectacular and things. But then it just fades away and nothing is built upon anything i mean i can put things on my website hey, but but you really have to have somebody that's getting you the interviews in people magazine or whatever or getting you on the talk show circuit or getting and i don't have that person or persons to keep me in the news in the loop on the, yeah yeah i mean i get publicity just prior to a concert depending on the orchestra's PR department. Sure. And I'll get a little bit afterwards when the review comes out. But after that, it's just like, next. And I go, okay. So, but I'm hoping, because uh, I'm working with some people right now um, because of these two centennials coming up for Rhapsody Machado now. Uh, I mean, if I not, I have to be the guy that everybody goes to around the globe so the idea right now is I'm working on setting up a real tour, not just one-nighters, which is, you know, basically my life. I just get hired for one or two concerts and that's it. There's no rhyme or reason, but I want an actually coordinated world tour for three years doing nothing but an all Gershwin evening to celebrate um, both pieces. Before we'll we see. get back to the, your tour, and, and I'm sure that we'll be able to, you know, Hopefully people will be able to listen and get to your, you know, other resources and become more aware of Kevin, of all things Kevin Cole. So somewhere in between here, though, we, we spent time in Chicago from what it sounds like. So for people who don't know, Ravinia is a Chicagoland outdoor festival, a very huge one. You know, the world's, you know, leading oh, yeah. performers almost yeah, since, go there. Since, 19, since 1904, they've been around. So, and they are the country's largest summer music festival because they cover everything, rock, pop, classical, you name it. Yeah. And during that period, at some point, you had a health scare. I did. Um, and it's actually, uh, it, it, was, uh, <laughs> it was when I moved back to Bay City after 22 years in Chicago. Okay. And I moved back because my mom had been ill. And your mother is uh, how old? Well, she's 89 now and she's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, right. as she likes to tell everybody, I still got my marbles. I said, yeah, <laughs> I know you do. I know you got every marble you were ever given. But uh, I was driving that five hour drive uh, between Bay City and Chicago a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And so I was barely in my apartment. I would literally drive to Chicago the next morning, get on a plane to play the concert, come back to Chicago the next morning, drive back to Bay City. So I said, oh, well, this oh, is so silly. So you were not even living, you were- No, living, no. And so I said, you know what? There really isn't anything happening in Chicago and Ravinia Festival, they will fly me in from anywhere anyway, or I can drive down. Right. And that's in the summer. 
So maybe I should regroup for one to two years, save some money, because obviously the cost of living is a lot cheaper in Bay City, Michigan. So I moved back in June of 2016. And little did I know, my mom was on the upswing. She was doing great. But little did any of us know that uh, by November 3rd, my dad would die. <coughs> Excuse me. That was unexpected. He went in uh, for a CAT scan on, on Gershwin's birthday, of all things, September 26th. And five, about basically five weeks later was uh, gone from T-cell lymphoma, which there was no cure for. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was out of the blue. I think that he knew, since I had just moved back to Bay City, I had an apartment in Essexville, uh, that he thought, oh, well, now's my chance to exit. He was 87. But he was in perfect health. He had just had blood work and everything done in, in the month I came back home in June. And he was perfect. And then he got a, like a cold in August and then boom. So that changed my picture because I, I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess my apartment's going to be a storage unit because I'm going to move back home into the house because my oldest brother who's retired is there and my mom and they don't drive either of them. So I said, okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. I let go of my apartment then the following year, you know, I filled, fulfilled my year's lease because I had to have my stuff somewhere. Uh, and uh, lo and behold in, let me see, when would that have been? Well, it would have been January of 2017. I just noticed that there was numbness on this side of my face. And then, you know, as the months progressed, I noticed that my case buds were off and the numbness was kind of halfway through the right side of my tongue. I noticed I was having some hearing problems with this ear. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm. And every once in a while, I felt a little toddly. You know, I'd be walking down the steps and all of a sudden I had to catch myself. Oh, well, that's weird. But I felt such blockage at a certain point by Thanksgiving of 2017. I said, I better go see an ENT. Maybe there's some kind of infection, blah, blah, blah. And from that meeting, he said, you got to have an MRI. From that MRI, he said, you have an acoustic neuroma, which I'd never heard about. It's a you know, certain kind of tumor. Because you have to go see Dr. Babu at the Michigan Ear Institute down near Novi, uh, Birmingham area, north of Detroit. Went to see him. He showed me the MRI. So it's pretty big. We got to get this out of you. Uh, so March uh, 19th of 2018, um, we, I had an eight-hour surgery to remove a life-threatening uh, wow. tumor, brain tumor. Uh, what's so weird is that it never impeded on my performing. In fact, I did a concert the Saturday. Was it the Saturday? Either the Friday or Saturday, I think it was a Saturday, prior to the Monday of my surgery with Sylvia McNair in Ohio. And she drove me to uh, Ascension St. John's Hospital in Novi after <laughs> that concert in Ohio. And I played for her. And so it was very odd. Uh, I mean, I had things that were bothersome, but never to the point where it stopped my performing. Uh, and I didn't really realize how serious it was, which I guess is a hidden blessing. Everyone else around me. Um, I'm freaked out now. So yeah, I'm this was kind of life and kind of yeah. life and death. And I never felt yeah. that. I felt in good hands with my surgeons. Um, I just thought, well, they'll get this out of me and that'll be that. And lo and behold, um, after this, oops, 
that was just showing me a little low power is what it's showing me. Part two might have to come up in a minute. Uh, but anyway, uh, I had the surgery and uh, what I did was, and I had heard that surgeons listen to music sometimes when they do, when they operate. And since this was an eight hour, it's an eight hour surgery if it goes well. It's 12 hours if it doesn't go well. So um, I handed uh, Dr. Babu uh, assistant when I got in that morning, early morning, the CD and said, hey, if they listen to music, this is my Cole plays Gershwin CD. So I heard after the fact that he had played it because he gets everything ready. And then another doctor comes to do the lifting of the tumor up. So I heard after the fact that Dr. Babu uh, told the other doctor, um, you know, I, you, you got to hear this. This is, okay. this, is the play, this is the actual. Yeah, yeah, you got to hear this. So they listened to it, he listened to it, and the second surgeon listened to it, you know, and, and uh, I came out of surgery, and uh, what was funny was the first thing I said to doctors, because they put you in a waiting area, a post-op, and I could see this guy in a white coat walking towards me. It's kind of blurry, but he, and, but as he came into focus, I, I remember the first thing I said was, there's my angel. And he kind of smiled. And uh, I put my hand out and he grabbed my hand. And the first real thing, I looked at him and I said, did I make it? Am I still here? <laughs> and he laughed and later told me, he said, I have never had a patient say that. I said, well, I don't know. You, you were in a white coat. I could have been in heaven. I don't know. So anyway, uh, but the other thing that was remarkable, they said they had never had a patient. Wait, oh, because he said he came in uh, 24 hours later. He comes into my room and says, you know, it, the operation went, it was picture perfect, couldn't have gone better. He said, but the tumor was larger than even the MRI showed. Because it was one of the largest ones we've seen. Uh, and so when he left the room was when it finally sunk in that this really was serious I, I i i didn't really but anyway the physical therapist came in because they want to get you moving right away and because what happens um you uh, first of all you can have face paralysis which is what was starting already and uh, and you can also balance issues because of the ear uh they weren't able to save the hearing in this year they had to sever the hearing nerve mm. so that they could get the entire tumor out and uh, so I have no hearing, zero, in my right ear. And I have about 80 to 85% in my left ear. So that was, you know, trying to get used to that is one thing. But I had to do physical therapy. And so the physical therapist came to my room. And I went with, I said, I have to go to the bathroom first. Went with the walker with that. And he said, well, you're doing that so well. He said, so why don't we just, you know, go out in the hall and, uh, He's, so we did, and he said, we're going to walk you to the room they're going to move you to later this afternoon out of ICU, it's fine. And then we got there, he said, I did so well. He said, I want you, you're going to walk back to your room without using a walker. I turned to him, I said, isn't that kind of crazy? He goes, yeah, it is. So, but I did it. Got back to the room and he looked at me, he said, I have been doing PT for 24 years and, may, and most of those have been with patients who just had this type of operation. I have never had a patient be able to do what you just did right after, you know, within 24 hours of surgery. He said, it's unheard of. He said, I'm going to tell doctor. He said, because right now, I don't think you need any physical therapy. I said, is that good? He said, is that good? 
because sometimes it takes a year, two years, it can go up to three years before people can regain walking and motor skills and whatnot. He, he said, I don't know what, what he's, what's, what's up with you. So what they figured out, the only thing they could figure out because it was so unusual was that because of the way my brain is wired for music, <clears throat> all along, once this tumor started so tiny and had we caught it soon enough, they can go in without having to open you up. But again, I didn't know, so you know. He said, uh, Dr. Babu said to me, he said, we, what we figured is the way your brain is wired because of your years with music, anytime a physical thing was ha happening that could have gone worse, your brain was rewiring and finding a way around it so that you didn't have the major symptoms a person really has before they go into this with a tumor your size. So I said, Was there well, any concern? I mean, you had to be concerned, obviously, at some point. <laughs> Any concern that you'd be able to, that there would be, you know, a barrier to start playing again? Did oh, absolutely. Know? In fact, I didn't touch the piano for about five, five and a half weeks. And I had a concert scheduled with David Allen Miller and the Albany Symphony for May 18th, hmm. eight, eight weeks to the day of the surgery. I didn't call David to two weeks before the surgery to tell him. Oh, oh yeah, by um, the way. <laughs> yeah, this, this concert had been on the books and I had agreed. Sure. It was supposed to be all four Gershwin works to one night to the next night. But because of rehearsal schedules and unions and all this other stuff, it was all going to be one concert. And so I agreed to, with David um, that fall before I was diagnosed with this that I will play, all, I've never done this, I'll play all four works in one night, which is, I'm, nobody's ever done that. All four Gershwin works, one night. It's, it's, it's impossible, basically. It's, 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 it's like uh, Michael Phelps winning <laughs> 11 gold medals. Gold medals all the same day. Yeah, so, uh, so anyway, so two weeks before, I'm calling David Allen Miller and going, um, I just want to talk to you about the concert. <laughs> oh, sure, everything okay? Yeah, but I'm gonna have brain surgery in two weeks, but it should be okay. Well, well, oh, no, just you, you bow out. Well, I'll just make it an orchestra. I said, no, I need a goal. I said, if I can play one piece, you get one. If I can play two, yeah. I said, we'll just see what happens. Because I had no idea. What did so, the doctor say? What did the doctors say? They must have set um, some expectation did, for you. You know, they didn't put any kind of expectation as far as music uh, on me. What they just um, said, we, we have no idea. Let's I mean, find out when you come out. Or? Well, I mean, they, they didn't see anything physically that should prevent it. It's just a matter of, adjusting to the hearing really uh, for me uh and and then also uh because of hearing and because the brain is healing does it affect any brain finger coordination yeah right that's what i, I mean it, it didn't really yeah it didn't seem to from the test they gave me but again the tests aren't playing the piano right. and the tests aren't about you know a 65 i don't know maybe plus pages of concerto that I hope is still in, in my head, as well as, uh, you know, another 50 for the Rhapsody, another, you know. So I got like, you know, three to 400 pages of music that I hope I can recall in my head. Right. Maybe it's okay, but you don't know. So when I sat down to play, the first thing I had to realize is that, you know, I'm not stereo anymore, I'm mono. So it was just like going from Technicolor to black and white. <clears throat> but I said, okay. I guess that I was point, concerned. That doesn't seem that bad. I mean, yeah, I was just all else equal. Yeah, but I was just concerned that I didn't want to overcompensate and play louder like a Beethoven, you know, because I can't hear it. Uh, but I, I came to the realization 
uh, that it's not 80% hearing, 20% physical. It's 50-50, at least for me. That I know from touch, my loudest louds and my softest softs. But I had never analyzed this before. I just do it. Why would I analyze? This is what I do. This is what I'm built to do. But now I had to think about my relationship to creating music. So that was the other thing. The biggest thing, outside of knowing that I can feel it physically as well as hear it, that they're equal, I have to figure out, do I still have the same connection emotionally and inside when I play? Because I'm, not, I'm hearing half of what I used to hear. Did you know that your memory of the 400 pages of music and that you're, I mean, there's technique that you've practiced and muscle memory. Yeah. I mean, I would have freaked out that you wake up and you don't know if that's intact. Did, or did you kind of have some idea when you were well, I, yourself? I played, the first thing I played was a little passage from Rhapsody in Blue. And the first thing I noticed, of course, was the hearing. And then I played it again. And then I started to talk to myself and say, well, what's different? And I said, other than hearing it at half volume, am I still connected to what I'm playing? And once I realized I was, then I thought, well, okay, I can deal with this. I, I still feel the same. Sure. And so I'll just see what happens. So the night of the concert, I mean, we had rehearsals that week and I had to watch my energy, uh, obviously, because I'm still recovering. I well, the bandage came up, but I had this huge, you know, bandage thing. I looked, I looked like Princess Leia with a big on my ear, cinnamon bun. And so, I, but I didn't know my stamina because I, obviously I wasn't, I didn't quite have the energy, but I needed to have the energy if I was going to get through four pieces one night, plus an encore. I think I played two encores, but it was there and I did it. And uh, I don't know if they did an archival recording or not. I, I should, I didn't ask, I should ask. They usually do, but it felt great. Um, and I, I have and I figured if I could do that eight weeks after brain surgery, when I'm not really full power and I can still get through the four pieces, I'm going to be fine. Okay. Yeah. That, that's pretty, that's an incredible story. A brain tumor, especially when you're, all of your synapses have so so much to do with your touch and speed and yeah. your speed has to do and power you yeah. know are all connected to your brain this is you're not like a dead weightlifter or something like that you're talking about <laughs> something pretty delicate and just yeah. unbelievable okay so kevin we're here now tell I, I had a couple of other questions you know that i had kind of mentally so now a 10 year, an eight year old person comes to you and says, Kevin, Mr. Cole, I like music. What are you gonna tell him? How much do you like it? You <laughs> like it as a hobby? You, well, they wouldn't realize, the word hobby is kind of old fashioned. Do you like it because you just enjoy it for yourself? Or are you saying you want to be a performer in front of thousands? I want of to people? be a performer. So now, what should I do? Uh, study and and really fine tune your craft and decide what type of music is going to be your platform. How you decide? It doesn't. You, you can't be well. Even at eight years old, you, yeah. Unless you're some kind of child prodigy, mm. okay. Um, it's not too early to, you should explore all genres of music for piano because something's going to speak to you and it may speak to you early 
or it may speak to you as a teenager or even later. <coughs> Excuse me. I, I, people have to realize George Gershwin wasn't born a prodigy like a Mozart and all these others. He didn't come to music till he was like 10, 11 years old. In fact, he thought that anyone that played music of his classmates was a sissy. And he get fights about it. He could care less about music. But he heard a classmate of his in a school recital play Dvorak's Humoresque on the violin. And, the, and for some reason, that kid, Max Rosen, was a friend of Gershwin's. I don't know how he slipped through because he played music. But after he, Gershwin heard that piece of music, it unlocked something in him that he wanted to go into music. I mean, so, so much so that he went to a neighbor. I don't know if he had a store, but he had a player piano at this, I'll say, general store. And Gershwin would skip school and he was going to that player piano, pumping it, putting his fingers in where the keys would go down and taught himself two pop songs of the day that way with no piano lessons because he, he was so driven. So when Mama Gershwin decided that they, their little house in Brooklyn, they needed a piano because her sister had a piano and that was kind of a status thing. Piano came through the window and they thought Ira, the older brother, would be the one to get lessons. George ran to it, sat down and played those two pieces. And his mom and dad and I were all floored because this is George, who they thought would become a bum. He was the ruffian. He was the roller skate champ. He was, he could care less about music. So then he started his lessons. So you never know what, when the calling, you know, hits and what piece of music speaks to you that unlocks that, that as the key. And for me, it was that movie. Boom. Uh, for George, it was... Dvorak's humoresque, which is perfect because it has that little blue note da, 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 at the end. And that, I'm sure, all of a sudden, like, what? What is that? And for an eight-year-old, who knows? Who knows what, what it is? But I would just say, if you really want to be a performer, you study from as many people as you can and take every, all that information and keep playing different types of music. And all of a sudden, you'll say, one week it'll be this song you like, the next week it'll be this song, but eventually it'll turn turn into something. You're, if you're eight, if it was the same person, 18, I just have this thought, am I too late? No. I, I, I don't have, but I don't have a decade of piano. I mean, you're 18, you're 18, you have 10 years of experience already. You're sitting already as a winner of a competition, sitting at a national music camp, at a yeah. price, a prodigy today, right? Can they can they be discovered at eighteen? And well, sure. Time? Well, look, okay, but look at look at an Irving Berlin. Okay, he was not known as a pianist, but certainly wrote more hit songs than just about anybody. Um, he could only play the piano in one key that he's taught himself. Uh, he couldn't read music, couldn't write down his own music, so he had to hire music secretaries and call them at two in the morning. You got to come down. He'd play it. They'd take notation as he's playing it and he did okay i mean I, I don't think he went to school more than a year as a kid uh some days as a little kid he only had an apple as his entire meal for a day that he had to steal off a cart and so it, you just don't know and he had his biggest hit musical at the age of 57 and he gets your gun so <laughs> yeah it, it's it's just a toss-up to almost yeah and it's and with social media and and, and this the way we can do things, true. you know, out, out of sci-fi. Yeah, it, it makes uh, careers overnight or at least gets your attention faster than ever. 
Yeah. That's, that's pretty amazing. Okay, Kevin. So last question. Last yeah. question before we get back to wrapping up and talk about your tour. Last question. The, you've played with a bunch of different other groups or individuals. Yeah. The craziest one. What's the craziest one? The, 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 the craziest personality that you had to share a stage with was blank. Uh, okay. Well, they're living, so this makes it a little tricky. <laughs> you can choose and they're carefully. on social media, so they'll probably see this. So I'm going to leave that person out. Um, I'm trying to think of one who's not here anymore. <laughs> I know, um, but that exists, right? That, that exists, right? I mean... Yeah, well, I can tell you a really interesting situation that was totally unique. And that okay, was. Let's uh, off the hook. Go with that. <laughs> okay. Well, David Allen Miller and I both uh, played Gershwin, an all Gershwin concert with the uh, Viet, uh, the Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam National Symphony Orchestra. And that orchestra had never played Gershwin. This was back in 2010. And so that was an experience to see adults who had never played Gershwin. And we're so excited to be able to play this music. And you're thinking this day and age, they haven't, ever, but no, because they, how would they? They play serious work. Their brass had most of their training, they were military brass. Mm. So they were just learning how to play orchestrally. So to all of a sudden have dropped me in and we did this Gershwin concert, uh, that was the love in that room and, and the anxiousness and they were so happy to try this music. And so it was just like, oh my word. And this is 2010. So that was really unique. That was extremely unique and a lovely, lovely experience because they were so happy with this music uh, and to see them light up hearing chords in, in things that they had never heard. Yeah, that was, that was cool. All right, Kevin. So thank you so much. So you bet. We've got the album we've got centennial right for these, 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 these i hope these. like i said i'm working on that right now because now's the time to get formulate a tour and see who will book me so i'm in talks this week and next week and and it's going to take a few weeks to coordinate and put our package together but i sure hope anybody seeing this if you got a symphony orchestra in your backyard put it there in good go. i'm always telling people when they go oh we want to have you back if somebody afterwards i'm signing a program i said put it in a good word for me i'll do that i said well yeah because if they hear feedback and say we want kevin back i come back you know? absolutely that's the that's your best referral yeah. naxos we've got concerto in f by by kevin cole uh, what what was the what is the word that there and I've seen the other reviews as well, but check out the links in the podcast as well as the video links to yeah. the album that's sitting up on. You can buy it on Amazon. I saw the album on on Spotify. You can listen to it there as well. I'm not sure if you even knew that, but it's there. Naxos of a huge label. Congratulations, Stephen. That's quite an achievement. I mean, like I said, I've got literally a thought over a thousand classical CDs. <laughs> so I would know, you know, at least there's the Deutsche gramophones and the angels, yeah. and EMIs, et cetera. And of course, you know, Telarc and certainly out there is Naxos and, you know, that niche group of, you know, very highly specialized musicians, et cetera. And, you know, congratulations. That's, that's pretty. Thank amazing. you. 
All Thanks, right. Jay. This, this has been fun. I've enjoyed it as well. Kevin Cole, thank you very much. Pleasure yeah. to have you. See ya. Well, I enjoyed meeting with Kevin, a person that I knew many, many years ago, but just happened to reconnect with him recently since the result, the release of his new album. Be sure to check it out. He's on Naxos. Again, that's Gershwin Concerto NF with Kevin Cole. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any other platform that you digest your podcast. I'm Jay. This is the Much More Than Maximize Your Medicare podcast. Speak with you next time.